From the red and black, this is the front page. It's Tuesday, August 4th. I'm senior digital producer Kira Posey. I'm Megan Middlehammer, and I'm the editor-in-chief at The Red and Black. I am Sherry Liang, and I am the digital managing editor. It's the last week of summer coverage, and it's been a big summer. In COVID-19 protests, our summer staff has been nothing short of busy while working remotely. This week, we're recapping our summer podcast episodes with The Red and Black's editor-in-chief and managing editor. We'll revisit some of our most important episodes and give you updates on pressing topics. And I'm here with our editor-in-chief, Megan Middlehammer, and managing editor, Sherry Liang. Uh, how are y'all doing today? Hey, Kira. I'm pretty good. I'm also great. Shortly after we began recording the podcast, the world caught wind of George Floyd's murder. The Black Lives Matter movement inspired protests across the nation and right here in Athens. Megan, you covered that first downtown protest in Athens on May 31st. Protests took place throughout the month of June on a smaller but consistent scale. Uh, What was that first protest like, and how did the month after compare? Well, when I first got to the protest and kind of saw just the amount of people that were there, um, it really overwhelms me because we've been living in this coronavirus era where we're not supposed to gather together. Um, So seeing all those people in one place is kind of shocking. During Mariah Parker's speech, um, there were chains to kind of take down the monument that she was standing on, which is the Soldiers Memorial Monument. Um, That sits in between the Arch and the Chick-fil-A in the middle of Broad Street. And um, the commission has passed a resolution to move that monument um, to a Civil War memorial somewhere else in Athens. Um, But some people still want it completely removed and then destroyed. Um, but others are fine with it being moved to that memorial at a different location. Um, so that has been passed. And with the month after, how, just from what you've seen and what you saw um, from our coverage and maybe what you saw in person um, in downtown Athens, how were those protests? Um, what did they look like? Yeah, so they were on a smaller scale, but um, the passion and consistency with which they met um, really stayed the same. And our photo department um, was there throughout the month of June, really there interacting with the protesters and making sure they covered all of the angles of their movement. Um, It was really interesting to see that their passion never really wavered. Uh, They just kept going um, despite uh, people just saying like, oh, you shouldn't be doing this or the COVID-19 concerns again. And even though like they were on a smaller scale, they didn't um, waver really in any other way. Like, protests ensued all of June um, and into early July. So what tangible action came from these local protests for Athens and for UGA? One protester spoke and called out President Jerry Moorhead for a statement he released um, that Sunday um, for not mentioning the Black Lives Matter movement at all, not mentioning the word black or racism or racist. Um, And so then the next day he released a separate statement Um, that was more fine-tuned and um, had some different language um, to kind of appease the protesters. And so right now, um, it's kind of a combination for what can UGA do during this time while also balancing um, their reopening plans. So making sure that they still um, adhere to what students are calling for in terms of racial justice and racial equality on campus, whether that's um, 
removing the names of um, white supremacists um, from campus or other um, diversity and inclusion like workshops and classes for students and faculty. So whether or not um, they can do that during the semester or not um, is uh, still up in the air. Also, I wanna mention that the University System of Georgia did create an advisory board to review the names of its buildings and colleges on its USG campuses. Uh, and they had their first meeting and they talked about uh, what the materials are going to look at, the historians are going to bring in to help them through this process, um, and how many building names and college names are going to have to review, which came out to be an estimate of 3,000 buildings and colleges on USG campuses, which is it's 26 USG campuses um, in the state of Georgia, which is a big undertaking. They're estimating that they're going to have to take until uh, about December at the earliest to do this, to go through this process. They also talked about student input, about activism input. So there is a link on their website to for students and for activists to um, make a comment about a certain building or college name on one of its campuses. Um, so that's all available on the University System of Georgia website. And they had their first meeting, but they haven't had one since. So we're still waiting and we covered that on our website. So you can go check that out if you're listening. I do want to mention that the USG advisory board is only to make suggestions to these different colleges about buildings and colleges that it's rename. It takes a lot more than just a suggestion to actually rename a college or a building. In a recent example of this, it took $2.6 million to name UGA's College of Education. Um, this is a definitely a, a huge undertaking for not only the advisory board, but the different universities, because again, a lot of money goes into that. So we'll see what happens. The Athens Commission also passed a resolution to mark Juneteenth as a local holiday um, and there was also a rally during that um, on Juneteenth. This summer was also a really interesting time for our reporters and our editorial and our editorial board. Um, uh, we kind of started off the summer with the podcast from Gabriella about her new series, The Minority Report, and she talked with Black people in the UGA community about the impact of the killings of Breonna Taylor, of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery. Um, and so she had spoken with a mental health advocate, and that was kind of the first of many podcasts this summer where we talked about intersectionality, where we talked about racial identity on campus and in the community. Kira had a story about intersectionality and Pride Month. So a lot of activists this summer have intersecting um, identities such as, you know, sexuality or gender. Um, and so that was really important for us to be able to tell their stories because, you know, like a Black man's experience is different from a Black woman's experience is different from a gay black person's experience. Um, and the most recent one we did was about Athens woman activists, which Anila had done an in-depth story about, which also went in our special issue paper. And she talked with, you know, the leading activist figures in Athens. So Mocha Jasmine Johnson, leader of AADM, Amani Scott Blackwell, and Mariah Parker. Um, and so all of these are very influential politicians, activists, political candidates who have had to deal with a lot of intersecting identities 
to overcome adversities. With everything going on in Athens and on a national scale, at the Red and Black, we realized pretty quickly that we have a diversity problem. And Sherry, you wrote an editorial about this, so I would love it if you could talk about the realizations that you came with and you grappled with, and we as a staff grappled with, with uh, that editorial. So, uh, come summer, we never had a diverse staff, (laughs) and this summer was no different, but the summer was different in the sense that we had to cover issues that our staff were not reflective of. Um, uh, We have no Black people on our editorial board. We have one Black person on payroll, period, this summer, and we have two other Black writers. So in total, we have three Black people in our newsroom this summer covering an issue affecting Black lives across America. And this was really reflected pretty much from day one of summer coverage. Um, And even beginning with that first protest coverage, we had not published anything regarding the Black Lives Matter movement. Stuff were in the works, but our coverage was delayed. We were called out for it. That was really a wake-up call for all of us because it, it just wasn't something we had discussed in the newsroom before. Maybe in passing once or twice, a white person would say, okay, there's not much diversity in here, but you know, like for the most part, people of color were pretty much understanding of the fact that there were not many of us. And so this led to a lot of conversations. Um, We had made an editorial decision to capitalize Black, but this was also driven by a person of color on our staff to resistance in the beginning. So um, we had to take a deeper internal look to see like what systemic issues we were contributing to. I think something else we've had to consider with the protests is the way we cover issues. So Taylor Gerlock, for example, our photo editor had to make her own decisions about how we were going to cover the protests. There's a lot of distress in the media at the moment. Uh, well, not for bad reason either. Um, but she and Catherine and everybody else who was on the photo team those few weeks really had to gain the trust of the public. They had to be intentional with their policies, which Taylor talked about in a podcast episode, um, but about her decision not to alter images, but also to respect the identities of the activists. Um, And so these are just conversations we've been having internally And as we talked about in our paper issue, like a lot of these issues we are not invincible to either. We contribute to many of these systemic issues, especially as a media publication in a majority white institution. Um, And so this was really a chance to uh, make sure that these people of color were being heard, these marginalized communities were being represented. And as we move forward, this is like an intentional effort to change because it is very hypocritical of us to cover these issues without covering how we affect these issues. And so moving forward, hopefully we are seeing tangible change. Um, I think there's a lot of talk about like COVID-19 and these protests and like returning to normal, but like I think we've all accepted at this point that there is no normal to return to. It's about kind of recreating a new reality 
without the shortcomings that we've been complacent with for the last 127 years. So moving on from everything surrounding racial justice this summer, which has been such a huge part of the summer, um, I want to talk a little bit about the bar scene in Athens. Um, so literally our first episode, we talked about the status of bars and how they had been closed for two months. We talked about that with our enterprise editor. We interviewed local bar owner John McRae about how he felt about reopening amidst the pandemic, um, which is odd now that most bars in downtown Athens are open. Um, and we just talked about how the two months of closures caused the downtown bar scene to lose $4 million. Uh, and Sherry, there recently have been some updates about the bar scene um, since, they, since they've been open since June 1st. So can you take us through those updates and what is happening with Athens bars? Yeah, so Anila has been doing a lot of this reporting from day one. Um, and so from the beginning, there has not really been a smooth, easy ride at all. Um, even after they open, they still have to consider things like employees' health and local and state ordinances to comply with. Um, and so it's definitely not been back to normal for the bars. Um, and even more so as Athens has been increasing in COVID cases at an exponential rate, which is especially concerning as college students are preparing to come back to Athens. Um, coming back to the bar scene, coming back to partying. So Mayor Kelly Gertz had announced that he was going to propose um, a new call time. So last call time is kind of the last call where businesses can sell alcohol. So he had proposed to move this call time from 2 a.m. to 9 p.m., um, when the mayor and commission passed it last Thursday, they had made it to 10 p.m. On Friday, multiple bars and restaurants had issued a lawsuit about the new enforcement. So a judge had ordered that the ordinance that would move the last call time from 2 a.m. to 10 p.m. would not be enforced. So that's kind of up in the air right now. And especially interesting, as I mentioned, that we are coming back to school within the next few weeks, especially, especially since people will be coming back for recruitment, for Greek life, for back to school parties. So where that goes, we don't know yet, but there's been plenty of drama in the last few days. So I would love either of y'all's thoughts on this. Um, what are y'all's predictions for how the downtown scene will look? Uh, as students move back to Athens and after classes start? Good question. Um, honestly, if we could just like normalize wearing masks in a bar, I think we would not be having a lot of the problems that we're anticipating that we'll have. Um, but just understanding that college students do think they're a little bit more invincible to this virus, and they're not with their families anymore. They're not concerned about going to visit grandma and maybe giving it to her. Now it's all about themselves and their friends. And if their friends are out doing things, then they're gonna go out and do things too. So um, with the last call still staying at 2 a.m., I think college students will take advantage of that, um, especially with the 
first week of school possibly being both a hybrid of in-person and online, hey, if you've got an online class and you want to sleep in, people are going to take advantage of that and go downtown. I mean, yeah, I agree. I think that's a good point that um, with online classes, people are probably going to have more time on their hands to go out to parties and bars. But I hope college students grow some common sense. But also my hopes are not very high. I think it will largely be dependent, too, on what the university decides to do. Um, So that will play a big role into it. Because if people are already traveling back to Athens to go to these bars, there's no telling what it will look like once we all return to school. Mm -hmm. And also the bars are really responsible, too, because they have the ability to limit the amount of people going into their um, businesses. They have the ability to spread people out in those places and um, just limit the amount of people that are in there interacting with each other. So bars kind of have some of this burden, too, because they have to make money. But then they also have to understand that they're the ones that could be controlling the amount of cases that end up spiking two or three weeks after students come back to campus. And talking about students moving back on the campus and back into Athens, um, school starting on August 20th, with less than two weeks even from when freshmen move into or can move into their dorms, what can we expect as we look forward to the semester, how our class is going to be? Um, yeah, what can students expect? Well, I, yeah, I have a prediction. Um, right now, because... Honestly, we were tracking what a lot of colleges were deciding um, from the moment that the California system said they were going all online um, to what Notre Dame decided and then other schools because we were just waiting for UGA to put something out there and the University System of Georgia to put something out there. Um, So now that we know that it is going to be a hybrid of in-person and online, um, when you look at the calendar right now, Labor Day is still a holiday that we're supposed to be taking and that's a time where normally we would have a football game. So a lot of people would go to football, but we don't have football until September 26th. So will students be traveling during that time? Will they go to the beach? Will they go back home? And then when they come back, will cases spike? I think they will. And then I think that would be a cause for us to go online completely. So my advice to freshmen would be don't move in too many things into your dorm room because you might have to take them all out again. Um, And unfortunately, that's just going to be a reality. If you have people traveling between states like constantly, there will continue to be a high number of cases. Um, And then that puts all the students and faculty at risk, and then you have to make that decision to move everything online again. And with that, I mean, us anticipating that, like, cases are going to spike, how are professors anticipating that? I know that it's sort of up to the option of the professors, how they're going to manage their class, whether it's, whether their class will be online, whether it will be, like, some class, some students go to the Tuesday session, some students go to the Thursday. What, I guess, have y'all as professors been saying? Or what have you guys seen from what we've gotten at the Red and Black? I have one professor who has been emailing throughout the summer. I had her last semester. I have her again next semester. And that's basically the only communication I've been getting. Not many people have been getting communication. I will say that. It's not very clear. It's definitely right. It's like a teacher-by-teacher basis, a department-by-department basis. My EMST department head 
sent us a preview email that we were going to get a big announcement on Tuesday. So when this is coming out, I will know. But he seems excited for it. Um, but generally, like, Spia, for example, has been laying it out pretty pretty clearly, especially the IA department, the International Affairs Department, had collectively decided attendance is not going to be required. We got an email from one of the professors yesterday that they were going to space out attendance. Um, if they wanted to come in person, they would need to register beforehand so that they could enforce some of the social distancing measures. Um, and that's pretty much the only clear-cut guidance I've seen as opposed to like some professors have just completely said we're moving all online. Yeah, I think leaving it up to the professors is a good idea because the professors kind of are in charge of their classrooms. They know what they're comfortable with and what they can judge, what their students will be comfortable with. But with that comes a lot of students still waiting for communication from them because their professors haven't made a final decision. So I think that will make drop ad week um, very stressful for students because if you get an email from your professor two days before we go back to school and you don't like the format that they're going to use okay you want to switch from that class but then how do you do that without having to email that the new professor and be like okay how are you running your class this fall so I think that's one of the things that will make drop ad week pretty challenging right now I've only heard from one of my professors um, and he's working on doing some hybrid type of model. And also, if you tune in next week, we'll be answering more concrete questions about what fall is going to look like and also what the university is anticipating um, with if we have to go online. Also, yes, in question, answering questions about housing, football, and other stuff related to reopening. So keep an ear out for that. I want to briefly mention two other aspects of student life dining halls and football so what's going on with the dining halls are there going to be loads of students at Bolton Dining Commons waiting for a hamburger what's up I hope not <laughs> um so it'll be a lot more formal I guess how this will play out no one really knows because all of the model images all of the model videos for the bus, for the dining halls, feature about five people, which if you've gone to Bolton at the hours between 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., you know that will not be the case. But what they are hoping to do is to have very spaced out lines to go mostly. So most of the meals will be taken to go. Um, they can order through Grubhub. They can pick up but only a few will be allowed in the actual dining commons to dine in, right? Yeah, you need a reservation. <laughs> it's not Bolton Dining Commons anymore. It's Bolton Restaurant, and you need a reservation, so. Yes, so it is only open to students with meal plans, no guests. It looks like, um, yeah, like you said, ordering online, picking up, taking to-go meals from there. Um, and dining in with reservation and self-service. So self-service is totally eliminated. If you want to scoop your own mac and cheese, this year is not your year. Um, cool. So, so Megan, what do we know about football so far? Um, so we know that the SEC conference has decided to push back the start date for football 
to September 26th, and UGA will be playing 10 intra-conference games, um, so that's only between other SEC schools, and for example, we will not be playing the rivalry game against Georgia Tech, which some fans are very upset about. Um, we do not know what seeding will look like for these games, whether that's only allowing season ticket holders and spacing them out socially distanced in Sanford Stadium or only taking a portion of students. Um, we're not sure what that looks like yet. Hopefully we'll get some clarification on that in the near future. But our sports editor, William Newland, had some great analysis the other day about what or if we will still be able to have football without having these bubbles that some of the major league sports teams like um, the NWSL, the Women's National Soccer League, um, and MLB kind of have in place. Thank you for that update, and hopefully we'll hear back some more soon, and whenever we do hear updates, I'm sure that we'll post something about it on the Red and Black. And before we end, I want to talk about y'all's favorite podcast of the season. What worked for you? What did you guys like? Probably the most fun for me to listen to was William's baseball story about the College World Series. He had put out like a three to four part series about the College World Series in 1990, I believe. Um, And that was the last time UGA had gone to the College World Series. I think that podcast was really fun for me because that was the first time we started to source audio from other places which was really cool because I think baseball has like that really traditional commentary radio voice that kind of makes everything exciting and I honestly have never sat through a baseball game in my entire life so that says a lot about how much I like this podcast and also William has a great radio voice which Kieran and I have discussed so check that out. If you want to hear some professional quality commentary, William's got you covered. Okay, yeah, I had um, top two. Um, William's College World Series one was great. Um, I loved listening to the former players like tell their stories kind of first person um, and kind of having the, the older audio from those games. Um, it really painted a nice picture when you sit down to listen to it. Um, and like Sherry said, even if you aren't a baseball fan, I am a baseball fan. But um, it was still fun to listen to because we didn't have baseball at the time. Um, so it was kind of nice to hear about that story and also take a break from um, kind of all the craziness that was going on this summer. And then uh, my second favorite one was the um, Pride Month Intersectionality podcast. Um, because Pride Month did look so different with all these protests for racial justice and how those two movements kind of intersected and what that meant for the people involved. I thought that was a really well-done podcast. And if you haven't listened to those, you can go check those out on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We're the front page. Cool. Well, thank you guys so much for joining me and talking about these updates and also just recapping the summer with me. Um, it's been an eventful summer, but I'm sure it'll be an even more, if not equally, eventful fall. So I hope all our listeners listen out for that coverage on the front page and at our website, uh, writingblock.com. Yeah, thank you, Sherry and Megan. 
thanks for having us. That was so fun. I loved being able to highlight everything that we did this summer because there was so much. And that was the front page. We have a special message from Sherry this week. So if you've made it this far, pay attention and direct message this word to the Red and Black's Instagram page for a shout out on our next episode. If you're listening right now and you DM hydroxychloroquine to the Red and Black's Instagram, you will receive a special, special message from all of us. The front page is a production of the Red and Black Publishing Company. This episode was co-produced by Kira Posey, Megan Middlehammer, and Sherry Liang. The front page is sponsored by the Cox Institute for Journalism Innovation, Management, and Leadership. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.